Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. To God's Word, I'll be hearing God's Word this morning from Genesis chapter 14, and this is where we continue the story of Abram. Uh, who will become Abraham, but he's not there yet. He's getting there. That'll come in chapter 17. We saw last week as we were looking at Abram, we primarily saw the abundant blessing of God. That God, as my children told me afterwards, the sermon was about God owns all the Oreos in the world. That is not entirely what I said in the sermon, uh, but it is a good reminder to us that God owns everything in the world, and he blessed Abram greatly, allowing him to give Lot the better land. But it's, that story is important for today's story because last week, Abram and Lot were both so rich. Abram, the uncle, Lot, his nephew, they separated, and Abram gave Lot his choice of land, and Lot chose the good land. He chose the land where there was water, where it was fertile, where there were other people dwelling, and he kind of left Abram the kind of deserty land that was not nearly as appealing. Abram didn't complain about it. It didn't say anything explicitly, but you could imagine that Abram, if, if I was Abram, I'd be a little bit miffed at Lot that he just took the better land. So keep that in mind, because in today's story, Abram is actually going to go and rescue Lot when Lot gets captured. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to listen to here, uh, because it's Genesis, you're going to hear a whole lot of names. And so it's, it's easy to just hear all these names and just like, what in the world is going on? But I want you to listen and think, one, what is the point of this story? Why did God record this story for us? And two, where am I in this story? In the midst of all these names, who am I, who am I in this story? Who do I identify with? So, Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Cadolaramar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddam, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketolormar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketolormar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Carnium, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakarathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as Alparan on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketorlormor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions, possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keter Lorimer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, and brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you caused this word to be written down so long ago and preserved for us. That this story from way back when would be your word for us today. We pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit as we reflect on it together. That this word would not merely be information for our heads, but transformation for our hearts. Sinking deep into us, changing the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, a great line in the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're, uh, if you're familiar with that story, if you're not familiar with the story, the kind of main character is Aslan, who is a bit of a Christ figure in the story. And he's coming to the land of Narnia. And he, he doesn't come very often. He hasn't been seen in Narnia in years. Uh, but Narnia is under control of an evil witch. And Aslan arrives. And Aslan arrives to rescue. But there's a problem. And the problem when Aslan arrives is that one of the children, who are the main characters in the story, the child Edmund, uh, has, betrayed, has, has betrayed his brothers and sisters. And he has gone over to the White Witch. And therefore, he is a traitor. And the White Witch comes and tells Aslan that Edmund has to be killed because he is a traitor. And that the law requires that traitors be killed. And that this is, this is, the, this is the law, that it must happen. And the other children, Edmund's, Edmund's one of four, his sisters, Susan and Lucy, they say to Aslan, they say, wait, can't anything be done? Can't anything be done? We can't, we can't go against it? And Aslan looks at them and he says, go against the emperor's magic? As if like, what are you thinking? The emperor is in control. The, the far off emperor oversee, his decree rules the land. And Aslan says there will be no going against it. Now in the story, he, he sacrifices himself uh, for Edmund's sake. It, it works out. But, but just that line, go against the emperor, the emperor oversee. A, a somewhat not spoken much figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, but clearly whenever referenced, he is in control of everything. And so when we look at this story in Genesis chapter 14, when we say, what, what do we see here? You know, the thing that starts to jump out at us is like this Abram guy who we didn't necessarily think much of before. Like, yeah, remember Abram, you know, he came to a new land, but he got kind of stuck on the way and paused for a long time. And then he went down to Egypt. He ran away from the land and he was afraid and he lied about his wife. And, but God rescued him from there and blessed him. And, and now all of a sudden we've got Abram like, watch out. Like this Abram, he is, he's a warrior. Like he hears that Lot, who he might, shouldn't really like at the moment, but hey, he's family. So he goes after him and he takes out 318 trained men in his household and they march 
and they divide by night and they make a night attack and rout these kings and beat them down and rescue all the people. So Abram is like, he's like a hero figure here. Like he is, he is rocking it. But if you look deeper, the message in Genesis chapter 14 is that even though we think that we want to do things, we want to look at this and we want to be like Abram. And it's not bad. It's, I mean, Abram's a good guy here. But, but that's not the main message. When we try to do these things, we are going to fail. Because the main message here, and we see this at the end primarily, the main message of Genesis chapter 14 is that God is the ultimate ruler. In all this talk of kings, there's 10 different kings mentioned here. There's the four against five that fight, uh, the ones rebelling against the other, five against four that rebelling. And then the king of Salem, Melchizedek, shows up. He's the 10th king. But when he shows up, he says, hey, blessed be God most high. He comes as the representative of God, and God is the ultimate ruler. That is the message of Genesis 14. Melchizedek recognizes it. Abram recognizes it. He knows. He says, no, I did this, sure, but no, it's God. God is the ultimate ruler. He is the emperor oversee. He's not mentioned explicitly. It doesn't say like God told Abram to go. It doesn't say like God, in the midst of the story, it doesn't say like God gave Abram the victory. But we know throughout this story that God is the ultimate ruler. And that helps shape where we find ourselves in the story. It helps shape how we respond to the story. Because if God is the ultimate ruler, then we, like Melchizedek, like Abram, should be giving him the ultimate praise. And so we see here, Abram's prime example for us is not so much in his battle skill, though it's impressive, but in the fact that he gives God the ultimate praise. That he recognizes with faith that God is the one that gave him the victory, that God is the one who rules all things, that God is the one who possesses the possessor of heaven and earth. The one who possesses all these, all these possessions that he recovered, they belong to God. So that's, that's the main message for us. So once we've got that set as our frame, that Genesis 14 is telling us that God is the ultimate ruler. God is the emperor over the sea and over the land and over everything else. And we should give him all the praise. Then we can find ourselves in the story. And then we can see who we want to follow here. But really, to find ourselves rightly in the story, even though most of the story, well, most of the story, honestly, is about all these kings. But like, right, but like all these kings, but they don't mean anything, right? They just, they just disappear because God is the ultimate ruler. And then we think maybe Abram. But actually to find ourselves, we've got to work from the back, to the, from the end to the beginning. Because when we come to the end, we find Melchizedek. There's three key characters here, really, after you leave out all those kings. There's Melchizedek, there's Lot, and there's Abram. And from each of them, we can find a different aspect of God's ultimate ruler. So we start with Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I've talked with a couple people this week about Melchizedek, because I, I love Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a fascinating guy. If you've never heard of Melchizedek before, just go, go to Bible Gateway and put in Melchizedek. And you can see he's here, and then he shows up in Psalm 110, and then he shows up eight times in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. That the author of Hebrews found Melchizedek to be very, very important. We don't have time to get into all of it. We're just going to focus now on what does Melchizedek mean right here in Genesis chapter 14. Because in Genesis chapter 14, what we see from Melchizedek is that God gets the glory. 
And the first thing we need to see here in, in Genesis 14, we're trying to find ourselves, is to find Melchizedek as the representative of God himself. Apart from Melchizedek showing up, this is just a story about old man Abram and how great a fighter he was and how he rescued Lot. And you could make a morality tale out of it of like, hey, he went and continued to serve Lot. He gave him the best land and then he went and rescued him. But Melchizedek shows up and says, no, no, this is not what this is about. This story is about God. Melchizedek, who is Melchizedek? Look at verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. See, we had a whole bunch of other kings. And so Moses, the author of Genesis, has to tell us here, this Melchizedek, he's not, he's not just one of those other kings. He's not one of the guys in the fight. He is the priest of God most high. Later on, the author of Hebrews will tell us what his name means that Melchizedek means righteousness, and the king of Salem means peace. This is the representation of peace and righteousness on earth. When we saw that, uh, that humankind was created in Genesis 1 to bear the image of God all around the earth, that's what Melchizedek is doing. He is bearing God's image on earth. He is the priest of God most high. He is representing God and his righteousness and peace. And he comes out to Abram, and he first comes out with bread and wine. Now, we see that bread and wine. We'll talk about this more when we come to the Lord's table. That, we can't miss that for us. But for them, at the beginning there, this, this was just normal sustenance. Let me refresh your soldiers coming back from the battle. So he comes bringing refreshment. He comes bringing righteousness and peace. And he says to Abram, he's like, look, Abram, you did a great job, but God gets the glory. That's what he says in verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram recognized it. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And at first, why? Why does Melchizedek get anything in just ordinary, like, old king style? Like, he doesn't deserve anything. It's either Abram's or it goes back to the kings it was taken from. But he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek, as God's representative. He says, look, I agree. You are representing God on earth and all these things belong to God. Yes, in human terms, I went and rescued them, but they belong to God. And so I'm going to offer this tenth of it, this, tithe, this tenth of everything, this tithe of worship to say, this all belongs to God and I give him all the glory. In our summer camp, uh, we have, we have uh, that I mentioned earlier, our summer last week's camp, we have competitions, and we compete hard. Uh, two teams, the Romans versus the Galatians, and they go, go, go. But at the end of every competition, they always cheer for the other team, you know, as, as most teams do. But then at camp, we always remember, who gets the glory? Jesus. In our competitions at camp, in our, all of our daily lives, we say that the glory goes to God. Why? Because he owns it all. He made all of it. Melchizedek stands here to remind us that God is the one who does this, that God gets the glory. Touch back on Melchizedek a little bit more later. But for now, on to Lot. Lot, why Lot? Why do I say that Lot is important here? What does Lot do here? What does Lot do in this story? He gets captured, nothing. Lot does nothing, right? He is, he is just there. Like, why does Lot get captured? Lot, Lot should not have been there, right? Lot gets captured because he was in the wrong place. 
He went in the last chapter to take the land that looked good, good to him. But we were warned in Genesis chapter 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. Now, in a few chapters later, Sodom will be destroyed for their wickedness. But even here, Lot went for what he thought was good, and he ended up in the wrong place. He selfishly took the best land for himself, and he gets captured. We have seen nothing righteous about Lot. So why is it important? What's important here is that Lot did nothing good for himself. He was in the wrong place. He got captured, but he was rescued. Abram went to rescue Lot. Who really went to rescue Lot? God went to rescue Lot. That's what Melchizedek said. That Melchizedek said, God gave, delivered your enemies into your hand. God went to rescue Lot. Did Lot deserve it? No, not at all. Lot did not deserve to be rescued. So where do we find ourselves in this story? We're Lot. The first place we have to find ourselves after we recognize that God gets the glory we find ourselves with Lot. We find ourselves as the ones who have been selfish, who have gone our own way, who have made bad decisions, and yet God comes to rescue us. This is the story. This is the great story of the Bible. This is the good news. The good news is that God comes to rescue his people even when they do not deserve it, even when they have gone their own way, that God rescued Lot from being captured. And this is where, where Melchizedek becomes important again. Because later on, I said, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about Melchizedek. He makes Melchizedek, he, he connects Jesus and his, sac, his service as king and priest to Melchizedek. He says Jesus is like Melchizedek. From the, he just shows up as the agent of God, as God himself coming to rescue. What does Lot need? He needs to be rescued. What do we need? We need to be rescued. And so Jesus comes to rescue us. Jesus comes as the king and as the priest, the victor, the one who can defeat the forces of Satan, the one who can defeat the lies that we are telling ourselves, the one who can pay the price, make the sacrifice for the sins that we have committed, for the selfish things that we have done. He comes to rescue us. So what do we need from Genesis 14 this morning? We need to be rescued by God. We need to say, yes, God, I'm Lot. I'm not doing much. I have gone my own way. I have been selfish. I've looked out for my own ways. Will you come and rescue me? And receive the rescue of God. Do you see here any condemnation of Lot? Any shame that Abram says to him, like, dude, come on. You took the good land and you got captured and I had to come rescue them, rescue you? He doesn't say it. Abram just goes after him. My kinsmen, I'm going to get him. Jesus says, my brothers, my children, I'm going to get them. Jesus came from heaven to earth to get us when we were like Lot. So we need to receive his rescue and rest in that and give him all the praise. So if Melchizedek tells us that God gets the glory and also represents for us Jesus coming to the rescue, Lot reminds us that we really are in need of rescue. We have made bad decisions. We've gone our own way. Then, after we go through giving God the glory, being rescued by him, then, then we can get to Abram. And then we can try to be like Abram. And then we can follow Abram's model of faith. For Abram is presented throughout the Bible as a great man, as a model of faith for us to follow, but only in the proper order.
And when we look at Abram then in that order, what we see, the glory of it that we see, is that God uses his people to do his work. Who rescued Lot? God rescued Lot. How did God rescue Lot? He sent Abram to go and win a battle. And Abram went out and he fought. And he did, he obeyed God. But Abram clearly knew what he was doing here. He knew from what he says to Melchizedek at the end, he was not in this for his own glory. He was not in this in his own strength. He knew that God had delivered his victory into his hand. And he promised, he said to Sod, the king of Sodom in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours. He is not in it for his money, for the money. He is not in it for the praise. He is in it because it is right. Because he is God's agent of blessing on earth. So if Melchizedek represents God's image on earth as king of righteousness, king of peace, so does Abram as the avenger of justice, the one who does what is right to go after the captives. This is the heart of God, to do what is right, to seek justice, to do good to others, not just those who have done good to us, but even those who have hurt us, even those who have acted selfishly, to be the agent of God on earth. What a privilege, what a blessing that is, to think, how can I be used by God if I'm committed to give him all the glory, if I recognize that he owns all things, and I am going to worship him, if I recognize that I needed to be rescued myself as Lot, then I get to be God's agent of rescue for others. That can look a lot of different ways in our lives. Sometimes that looks like not speaking up when we've been hurt. Sometimes it looks like just letting things go. Sometimes it looks like forgiveness of telling others, like, look, you did hurt me, and I forgive you. We can be reconciled. Sometimes it looks like actively doing good for those who haven't done anything to deserve it. When I say we want to throw parties for our neighbors, it's not, I mean, I'm sure your neighbors are great, but that's not why we throw parties. It's simply to be a blessing, to be a blessing to all whom we can. Sometimes it looks like telling other people about what God has done for us, encouraging them when they're feeling down, say, look, you feel like you've messed up? I messed up too. You might not say to them, like, I'm like Lot. That might be a little confusing, but you know it. You know that God has rescued you, and you can offer that rescue to others. You can invite them into the community, into the resurrection community. Say, hey, we will come around you and support you, because we're all like Lot here. We all need to be rescued, and in that we get to rescue one another. We get to be God's hand of blessing and goodness to one another. So we see that God is the ultimate ruler. We give him all the praise and glory. Melchizedek drops into the story to say, God is here. This is not just about Abram, not just about Lot, not just about a bunch of kings, but God is here. That is why Melchizedek is so important in chapter 14. That's why he gets picked up in Psalm 110 as a prophecy of God's coming king who will rule over the whole earth as the perfect representative of God, king of God's people, priest of God's most high, priest of God most high. And then that was fulfilled in Jesus as the perfect king priest, perfectly bringing God to earth because he was God himself to rule over this whole earth as God come down in human form, king and priest forever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.